once your trust has been broken once, it's very easy to break it again. So if you've read something that you know is wrong in the media, then you are more inclined to disbelieve everything else you read in the media. So, yeah, I think our trust is absolutely shattered and we don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. So we turn to our friends and individuals who we believe will be telling us the truth. And quite often they're not. Kate Hartley is a crisis communication specialist who recently published a book that focuses on why and how people behave the way they do online. She says that misinformation has become more prevalent and is likely to continue to do so because as a society, we simply don't know what to believe or to trust anymore. People are so worried and so frightened that they believe these things. So I think we, when we're, we've got sort of heightened anxiety, we then share things that feed into that because we think it might be true. We're living in this crazy world. Anything could be true now. So we share things that, that feed those anxieties and that we think might possibly be true or, or confirm our own prejudices or whatever it is. It's, but it's, it's confirming our own biases. On today's show, Kate and I discuss how outrage has become currency for some people on social media, how crisis planning is now essential for every organisation, and how brands should react to misinformation online. We always talk about being the source of truth in a crisis as the company. You, you have to be the source of truth. You have to be the person that, or the, or the individual or the company or the brand or whatever that people come to to say, I need to know what's going on in this situation and I believe that the brand is the one that's going to tell me. I think we're pretty far away from that at the moment, but that's where we'd like to end up, I think. This is Digital Download, a podcast that explores the latest thinking in digital communications, PR and social media. Here's your host, Paul Sutton. Welcome back to the podcast, Kate. Uh, really good to have you back again. You've been on before, I can't remember when, about a year ago, I think. Um, but two things have happened since then. The first, which we're going to come to in a minute, is that you have published a book. And the second is that you've had a rather big birthday, haven't you? Oh, that's mean. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I've had a very big birthday. Thank you very much. Um, I was 50 this year. Yeah. Did you have a nice time? I had a lovely time. We spent, we got the only wet week of the um, summer and went to Dartmoor. <laughs> Great. <laughs> no, it was lovely. I, I ran away from it a little bit, but it, it was fun. And are you coping with being that age? <laughs> I mean, it feels weird. I just don't, I don't feel 50. And yet, you know, 50 is the age, isn't it? Where you start to get, I don't know, saga brochures and funerals <laughs> through the post and, and all this stuff starts to happen. And, and yet you don't actually feel any different than you did when you were 20. Yeah, it's a very strange well, feeling. Uh, I'm I'm 50 in two years' time, and honestly, I'm panicking about it already. <laughs> <laughs> I've never had birthdays. I've never been bothered about age. You know, when I turn 40, I'm like, eh, whatever. But 50 is freaking the life out of me. It yeah, really it freaked is. me out a bit as well because suddenly you realise that you're not even just middle-aged anymore you're kind of heading no. towards old age and that's really I funny know. especially in this industry I mean I'm always the oldest person in the room these days I know I know I said to you before I think we, we are now industry veterans <laughs> <laughs> I was just I was on a podcast recently and described as an industry veteran wow. <laughs> at which point I, I nearly got up and walked out that's really bad that's <laughs> it really is, bad it? yeah but anyway um so yes Let's leave that alone. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you have published a book. I have. And I think the last time I was on, I just missed my second or third <laughs> deadline for it. I'm not sure. Yes. 
Um, I did that classic first author thing of um, missing every deadline. I think the first deadline, I just, I rang up the publisher and said, I'm really sorry, I'm going to miss the first deadline. They said, that's fine. Second deadline, I rang them up afterwards and said, I have missed the second deadline. And they sort of, <laughs> there was a pause. They said, yes, that's okay. Third deadline, I just ignored them, buried my head in the sand. <laughs> anyway, I eventually got it done. Well, I mean, it's a brilliant book. It really is good. Um, it's called Communicating a Crisis. And obviously, it's all about crisis management. But there's a lot, lot more to it than that. Having read it, I, I do think it's a fantastic book. Um, I, I would go far as to say this and Mark Schaefer's uh, recent book, Marketing Rebellion, are the two books that I would recommend everyone read um, in, in the communications industry. I, I think this is a fantastic piece of work. I really do. That's really kind of you. Thank you. Um, we're going to talk a bit about that today yep. and about the whole area of of crisis management and fake news particularly which is an area that interests me massively because of, of what's happening yeah so the the book itself takes kind of a, a deep dive into the psychology of how and why people behave the way they do yes and it takes the angle that of this this psychology rather than a more conventional crisis management book i mean what was the reason for going down that route when you decided to write the book i think there were two things firstly there are some brilliant practical crisis manuals out there and i think the one i read just before i wrote this book was adrian wheeler's book on crisis that he did for the prca so there's some really good step by step this is how you need to manage the communications in a crisis no, right. I just didn't think there was a need for that, to be honest. Nobody needs another one of those. There are some really good ones out there already. And the second thing is that this is what interests me, is how people behave. Yep. One of the things that I do at Polpio, as you know, is train companies on how to respond in a crisis. And I thought, you can't respond effectively in a crisis if you don't understand how people are behaving in that crisis. You have to understand yep. how they're behaving and how that's changing. Because some of the old crisis responses just don't work anymore. You know, you can't wait for the next news cycle to come out. You know, you have to you have to think about the people's need for immediate information, the fact that they're going to be spreading fake news about your brand in the crisis. Um, there are going to be people deliberately sharing misinformation. All these things are going to happen that just didn't happen 10 years ago. So you have to change the way you respond accordingly. Yeah. I mean, we were talking before we started recording about how crises are effectively becoming sort of big business for communications teams yeah. and, and, and PR companies. Why do you think that is? And, and let's see if we can encapsulate your book in, in two minutes. <laughs> why, why do people behave the way they do when it comes to crisis stuff? I mean, why, why are people behaving the way they are online, do you think? Well, that's, yeah. And I was looking very specifically at people's behaviour on social media or certainly the way people's behaviour is uh, communicated on, on social media as the basis for this book. So it is quite sort of social media focused because I think that's the big shift in crisis management, crisis communications management now. Yep. Um, I think crisis comms has always been big business for, for agencies and, and comms teams, actually. But I think what's changing now is that people are terrified about the speed at which things happen. Yeah. I think there are a number of things that have changed one is that information spreads much much more quickly than it ever used to and so companies are out of control in crisis management we always talk about the golden hour you have an hour between the crisis breaking and your first response mm -hmm. i'm not sure that that's true anymore i mean i think 
you need that hour and you need an hour to get information, the right information out to the right people. But actually a lot happens in an hour, you know, stuff spreads that's not true. So yep. you're, you have, you're dealing with speed. You're dealing with the fact that people wear outrage as a sort of badge of honour. So yep. if you see something on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram that outrages you, then you are going to share that to say to people, this is who I am. I am a person that is outraged by these things. And you wear it like a badge. So that means that things, this outrage spreads far more quickly. Then you've got all the kind of other factors like fake news. And I know that's a term that that some of the industry bodies are trying to move away from to talk about misinformation. Yeah. And I understand yep. I understand why. But fake news is the kind of um, the term that it's everybody the knows exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you've got people who are accidentally spreading misinformation because they believe it to be true. Then you've got people who are deliberately spreading it because they've got some sort of malicious intent. And then mm-hmm. you've got the news, um, the news outlets who are desperate for for clicks because the subscription model is broken. So they're trying to rely on advertising and other means. So they're they're searching for for clicks and views of articles. And so you've got all these things going into the mix. And it's just this sort of perfect storm, I think. So. It is a big question. And who's who's responsible for all this <laughs> crisis? Is it people yeah. who are, like you say, reacting to things and reacting, you know, negatively to things where maybe they should just shut up? <laughs> or is it the media who are reinforcing it because they need clicks and they need traffic? I mean, where does it where does the responsibility lie? Or is there one? I don't think there's any single place, actually. I think it's it's all of those things and also organizations are having to change they're not able to cover information in perhaps the way i'm not saying everyone used to but there's a certain amount of spin perhaps in crisis communications 10 20 years ago where you would try and present the best side of the truth you don't necessarily have the opportunity to do that anymore and you've got people on social media expressing their outrage campaigning using it as a as a platform to to share their personal views you know rightly or wrongly yeah and then you've got the media picking up on this because it's a good story so you've just got this this sort of torrent of stuff that's all happening together yeah i don't think there's any one place actually i just think it's all enabled now by technology yeah Uh, and there is that question of of whether technology enables it or even causes it which is a big question and I've talked to you and Semple in the opening episode of this season about that whole issue and it's it's a very interesting argument where, where does it end though I mean because like you say it's a perfect storm it's happening now it's difficult to see how this is going to shake out in I don't know two years time five years time yeah do you have any sense of how this could develop or where it ends well, I think we're a bit of a live experiment at the moment. I don't think anyone really knows how it's going to end. And there's a really interesting um, researcher in the States called Molly Crockett who talks about moral outrage in the digital age. She wrote a, a big piece of research about it. And there are a few things happening that mean that have never happened before. So we're more likely now to learn about things that are outrageous online, so on social media. So Whereas in the past, perhaps we might have been outraged by something, I don't know, say once a week, you'd read something in the paper that really upset you or really outraged you. Mm -hmm. Now you're going to see those things multiple times a day. And that's never happened before. We've never had access to information in the way that we do now. Expressing our outrage gives us some kind of social currency. So as I said, we wear it as as a badge. And we're getting into this sort of habit of being outraged. And that's never happened before. 
Right. So we don't really know where it's going to end up. I think either we're just going to get angrier and angrier. And you know how when you talk about something that you're angry about, it makes you more angry. You know, you, you kind of talk yeah. yourself yeah, in yeah. the corner. So that's happening. So we're getting more outraged. Or we're just going to get so fed up of it that we're going to have this sort of outrage fatigue. And we're just going to say, yes, I'm outraged and in a sort of slightly bored manner. Um, <laughs> and we just don't know. We don't know where that's going to end. So we don't know what's going to happen. That's from a ordinary people point of view. From a from a company point of view, I think what's happening is that the pressure that consumers are putting on brands now, and this I think is a really good outcome of social media, is that they're having to be more transparent and more honest than they've ever been before. They can't cover stuff up anymore. Yeah. And so that's got to be a good thing that they're having to be more open and honest. I, I would totally agree with that. I think you know when on the occasions now where companies are caught out. They are exposed and flogged publicly about it. Yeah, absolutely. It. And Sometimes it's a lesson. Wrongly, though, for... And that's where the fake news thing comes in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And let's talk a bit about the, the, the fake stuff or misinformation, whatever we want to call it. So, one thing that's been interesting me hugely over the past year or so is how deep fake technology is coming on sort of leaps and bounds. Yeah. And at this year's Digital Download Conference, I talked about how there are all these different strands of of fake technology that that you know what technology can do so you have video you have uh, deep fake videos which are pretty incredible i have to say you know you you struggle to see some of the signs of a of a fake video now even let alone what it's going to be in 6 months time and now there's the sort of anti deep fake video where technology is being put together that can identify this stuff so there's all that happening you've got the audio side of things and there's a company in china now that can now clone a human voice with just 3.7 seconds worth of audio now you go back 12 months they needed 30 minutes of audio to do the same thing so again it just shows how fast this stuff's moving and then on the on the other side of it you've got all of the the written stuff you know the the fake written well not fake written content content written by bots effectively uh, and the AI side of things. So there's this massive influx of technology able now to create effectively fake content. What sort of a threat do you think that is to the communications function and to the the PR teams? Oh, it's a huge threat, isn't it? Because we can't determine what's real and what isn't with right. words. We tend to believe the way people talk. Yep. Um, and when we see them or hear them speak, then then we make a judgment. And yes. if you now can't even believe that, and yes, there might be technologies to detect that, but who's actually going to have access to that technology, really? You know, right. Ordinary people. It's absolutely terrifying. So I think what's going to happen is we won't we won't believe anything, and then that then all you believe is the stuff that you read that kind of confirms your confirmation bias. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. that really frightens me because that leads to polarization. You know, you read stuff, you, you only read the thing, you only believe the things that kind of already sit with your moral norms. Yeah. And then we won't, we just won't question anything. We won't believe anything at all. I mean, it's getting into years and years territory, isn't it? Have you, have you watched years and years? Amazing program. I haven't. No, no. Oh my God. It's so good. Um, and it, it examines some of these issues and it is absolutely terrifying because nobody believes anything at all that they read or see or hear. And then where, then where do you end up? Yeah. I mean, it's, I don't know. Are, are you scared about it? <laughs> I know this is a personal question, but I it am, scares actually. me. It scares me, you know. 
I am scared about it. And I think what you end up having to do as an, as an organization, what you end up having to do is you have to be trusted. Yeah. So there are opportunities there, I think. But yeah, it terrifies me. Absolutely terrifies me. But as a business, you have to be a, the trusted voice of authority when something goes wrong so that people believe you, what you're saying. And so I suppose what people have to do is to go to the official channels. Perhaps, perhaps it'll mean a return to traditional news articles. I don't know. I mean, that'd be amazing, wouldn't it? If we then started to say, well, I can't believe anything I read, so I'm only going to read it in the Times or the Guardian or the Telegraph or the whatever. I suppose that would be a very good outcome. I'm trying to find it the would, optimistic it, outcome. Yeah, I'm really struggling. It, <laughs> it would be a good outcome if those outlets survive, I would say. I mean, that's the big question. Well, it is. I mean, you look at even online news, the Guardian seems to have cracked it at the moment with a donation model, but the paywalls don't really work because they limit your readership. Then you've got the ad model, which is just horrifying when you click yeah. on a, a media title and, and it takes a minute to load because of all the ad widgets, you know, yeah. bumping into it. It's terrible. But no, I mean, it, it, it does scare me. I mean, there was some, there was some research in the US actually. I can't, I think it might have been Pew Research. I'm not sure that showed that after the Trump election in 2016, young people were starting to subscribe to publications at a rate that they hadn't seen in the last 15 years. Oh, really? Because they weren't getting anything they trusted from any official sources, so they wanted to... Interesting. Yeah, and that, I thought, was quite quite positive. Yeah. It's interesting you, you say about the Trump stuff. I mean, a lot of this, what we're talking about, has has really happened or at least taken off since sort of 2016 the last three years or so because you had the trump election we had the the brexit we've had i know all the cambridge analytica stuff going on and it's been well documented that trust has absolutely plummeted since then in in different areas it's gone up and down sometimes the media ranks higher sometimes it's lower sometimes social media is up sometimes it's down but as a general trend trust is is you know is is fallen significantly what do you think having having sort of written the book and, and investigated this stuff what's the psychology of why people either create or share fake stories i think it goes back to that confirmation bias i think people see things that they want to believe and they share it because they don't necessarily trust any kind of official channels anymore we don't trust governments we don't trust media we don't trust um businesses but we do trust individuals we trust individuals that that tell us things that we think instinctively must be true yeah so there was a great example um of a piece that was flying around social media uh, a year or two ago which was saying that the government was now monitoring all your social media activity your whatsapp messages recording your phone calls and all these things would be stored and you now couldn't criticize the government that was now going to be against the law and there were some really sensible friends of mine that shared this with me because they know I work in social media and just saying you know is this true and I thought no of course it's not I mean of course it's not true (laughs) but but people are so worried and so frightened that they believe these things so I think we when we're we've got sort of heightened anxiety we then share things that feed into that because we think it might be true we're living in this crazy world anything could be true now so we share things that that feed those anxieties and that we think might possibly be be true or or confirm our own prejudices or whatever it is it's but it's, yeah, yeah. it's confirming our own biases and again that leads to polarization because we're starting to believe things that are more and more extreme 
whatever side of the political divide you are, for example, you know, you've got that there's no room for sensible debate on anything anymore. We're all sharing things. <laughs> no. it's, just, it's crazy stuff going on. It is, it's funny. I have, as you know, I do a lot of workshops um, and, and training for different organisations. And a question I get every, without fail every every single time I do a workshop is about whether Facebook is listening to us through our phones. But come and, on, you must have had those. You must have wondered. <laughs> I mean, we've well, all the, wondered. <laughs> well, you see, I, I don't because I know the reasons it, yeah, it I can't really happen. Either. Every yeah, now and again, you a, get a recommendation. You think, no, hang on. I just had a conversation right, yeah, about yeah. that yesterday. I know. <laughs> totally. And I get this every single time. And, and I explain to people that the amount of connections and information you're fed and you, 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 you're you going to get some coincidences. Exactly. And then there's the technological thing of Facebook simply does not have the bandwidth to monitor two billion phones and and serve ads based. I mean, there's a whole lot of interest. I mean, can you imagine? Oh, you know, exactly. Right. They're absolutely. listening to me listening to the Archers or something. It's just, exactly. <laughs> that's something right. that happens when you hit 50, by the way. You listen to the Archers. <laughs> yes, I'll be picking it up soon. <laughs> <laughs> um, I sit there and I explain this to people, but you still get people, I guarantee, in every single session who are absolutely convinced this is a thing. Yeah. And it just points to that whole, what you were talking about of, of not trusting anything or believing believing things that actually if you actually sit and think about it you think okay well that's 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 obviously rubbish but uh, i don't know this it feeds into this whole big melting pot of stuff i think at the moment and once your trust has been broken once it's very easy to break it again so if you've read something that you know is wrong in the media then you are more inclined to disbelieve everything else you read in the media and I think that's yes, happening now. Yeah. So we're also yep. aware that there's misinformation everywhere that we kind of don't, we don't believe anything. And yet we believe everything that we want to believe, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I think our trust is absolutely shattered and we don't know what to do. We don't know where to turn. So we turn to no. our friends and individuals who we believe will be telling us the truth. And quite often they're not, not deliberately. Yep. They just are also spreading all this misinformation. So from a, a, a crisis management perspective then, with all the, the misinformation and stuff out there, fake news, fake videos, fake audio, all that stuff, how, what's the best sort of overlying strategy? I know there's a lot to this, but what's the best overlying strategy to deal with fake content from a, from a crisis management perspective? I think the first thing is to be aware that you are going to have to deal with it. It's one of the things that is not in most people's crisis manuals. There's a lot of information in there about how quickly you need to respond, um, how honestly you need to respond, yep. different template statements, all sorts of things that are in people's crisis plans. But I've very, very rarely seen addressing fake news in somebody's plan because right. they don't really expect to have to do it. So that's the first thing. I think if you're if you're expecting it and there will be fake news or misinformation, whatever you want to call it, that is circulated in every single crisis situation, I think. And do you believe that is genuinely the case, that every single crisis situation now, you're going to have misinformation? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. I mean, there's the odd one where you don't, but mostly there's going to be somebody trying to stir it up for that company, because either because it's funny or because there's some sort of other motivation like money or you know some sort of political agenda. Yeah. But there will, there will always be something. And, of course, every time that fake news is shared the crisis story will also come to light again. So it's actually going to perpetuate the crisis situation. So you've got to be prepared for it. Mm -hmm. You've got to deny it quickly. So you've got to be all over these rumours and misinformation and you have to deny it. You have to lay down the truth. 
because you never know when that's going to come back again and you want it on record no matter how trivial it might seem you want it on record that that is not true and that's not an official communication from the company for example because because we've talked a lot in the past when we've, we've worked together on on communication stuff about on um, crisis stuff sorry about the things you choose to respond to and the things that you just leave you're saying with this stuff you absolutely respond to anything that is untrue I think I really think you should I mean it's you know the people spreading lies about your company I think you should you should deny it I mean it, as long as it is not true, of course. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, if somebody's saying you're a bad company and whatever, then and perhaps you are, then then you might not want to respond to that. <laughs> um, but if there is something that is deliberately and maliciously somebody maliciously spreading misinformation, then I think you have to you have to stamp on it pretty quickly, yeah. and also make sure that your employees see that you you're stamping on it too, because you just don't want these little seeds of doubt to spread. We always talk about being the source of truth in a crisis. As the company, you you have to be the source of truth. You have to be the person that, or the or the individual, or the company, or the brand, or whatever that people come to to say, "I need to know what's going on in this situation," and I believe that the brand is the one that's going to tell me. Uh-huh. I think we're pretty far away from that at the moment, but that's where we'd like to end up. I think. Right. How do you think crisis management has changed in the last, I don't know, two or three years since all of this stuff has has really taken off? Like like I said earlier. I, I, it seems to be becoming a big industry in itself almost. Um, but how has the process of dealing with crises changed? I think, I mean, yeah, I think the principles of crisis management haven't changed. It's just that we're having to apply them in an environment we've never seen before. Right. And I think one of the things that companies really struggle with is being open and honest and telling things as they are. I was training a fantastic group the other day and I was giving them some um, situations that were not real for them to write their first statements and, and decide what their crisis strategy was going to be. And one of these situations I gave them was um, there's a fire in your warehouse and you need to put out your first statement. There is a number of people missing. And they all, every single one of them, their first statement said, we are aware of an incident in one of our warehouses in XYZ. Okay. And so I turned around to them and said, why, why did you say an incident? Why didn't you say a fire? And they said, oh, well, we don't know what we're supposed to confirm. We're at this stage. We don't know the facts. I'm like, there are flames coming out of the top of the building. <laughs> Everybody around you can see it's a fire. Call it a fire. <laughs> and that's one of the really, it's fascinating because I think there's something that happens in a crisis where we retreat behind this corporate language that we think sounds slightly legalese that isn't going to get us into trouble. Uh We're not going to have to take liability. God forbid we should ever say sorry for anything. Oh, no, 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 never. Never ever (laughs) say that. Um, And so we retreat behind words like incident, issue, things that don't mean anything. I mean, if there's a fire and you can see the smoke, call it a fire and then people will believe you. Where do you think that comes from? I mean, has that always been the case? I think with commerce people, we're used to dealing through a conduit of media and the media has always done a really good job of exploding our jargon and putting things <laughs> into plain language. And we ne- we haven't necessarily ever been in the habit of talking direct to consumers. And I think we are now having to do that. And that's quite difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that there is a real issue between comms and legal as well. The number of simulations I've run or, or training sessions I've run where legal teams have said, oh, no, no, we can't say sorry because it might be admitting liability. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or the comms people have said that because they think that that's what legal is going to say. And the first question I always ask is, are you liable? And if they say yes, 
well, then it's not a problem, is it? <laughs> no, no, no. If you are liable, then it doesn't matter if you admit liability. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, so, you know, please, listeners, don't take my advice on this necessarily. <laughs> um, but I think you can say sorry. And I had a brilliant conversation with John Brown from Don't Cry Wolf when I was I was telling him about um, I'd had a t- I'd had a rubbish year in 2016, all sorts of things. I'd had, I'd had surgery. My mum had died. I'd had a fire in my flat and had to move out for seven months while it was rebuilt. It was literally, it was one of the worst years ever. And I was telling him about the fire and the flat as being the sort of icing on the cake of all these horrible things. Yeah. And he just said to me, God, I'm so sorry. And then we both stopped. And I said, did you set fire to my flat? Are you admitting liability? <laughs> <laughs> and you realise that actually you can genuinely be sorry and be open and honest without there having any legal implications, in my view. Absolutely. The way I always phrase it is, is that you, you can apologise for how you make people feel or how people do feel without actually admitting any liability at yeah. all. It's, yeah. it's, it's a completely different thing. But yeah, I, I, I think companies don't understand that. And sometimes if you are liable, I mean, there was that awful incident, wasn't there, that Thomas Cook went through where the two children died in an in a apartment where the boiler had exploded or something. Some, I can't remember the exact circumstances, actually. Yeah. And it was two years, I think, before the company said sorry. And the, I was listening to a lawyer talk about that incident the other day and they said actually if you take all the emotion and all the moral judgment and everything else out of it from a purely financial point of view not saying sorry cost thomas cook more than it would have done to admit to accept liability yeah yeah so it was it would have been a very simple financial decision and i think that sort of changed the way companies feel a bit about this absolutely okay well look, we're running out of time but i want to ask you a question that i'm going to ask a lot of people throughout this particular season of podcast which is about you referenced earlier about how we now see i don't know multiple incidents of whether it's fake news or arguments or all sorts of stuff on social media we're just exposed to it constantly what do you feel is the future of where social media is headed over the next three to five years oh that is such a big question isn't it yes it is (laughs) I think it'll probably implode at some point. In what way? Well, I think what's happening is that we are seeing more extremes of views on social media. I think we all believe that, probably. And that means that the rational voice that hopefully most of us have at most times, we can all be pretty extreme in some times, obviously, we're very angry or whatever. But most of the time, we sit in the middle somewhere. We're not, you know, extreme left, extreme right, extremely happy, extremely sad. You know, we we sit somewhere in the middle. And there is no place for that on social media at the moment, is my mm-hmm. feeling. So my worry is that people will start disengaging and feeling like they have no voice. So that almost comes full circle again, doesn't it? So something's going to have to change in order for social media to keep being relevant and viable. I can't see that the genie is going to go back into the bottle. I don't think we're going to stop communicating. I don't think we're going to stop using our nope. phones, using social media. Nope. But something fundamentally has to change. Otherwise, it's not going to have any place for most people. It's only going to be for extremes. So either we're going to go much more into closed groups 
which I think we're already seeing with people posting much more into messenger groups, for example, and, and using yes. things like WhatsApp and um, rather than, than, you know, posting everything about their lives on Facebook. So either we're going to see people much more in closed groups, so it's going to become much more like a an offline equivalent. It's going to be online friendships happening in the way that they do offline in small groups, or it won't be relevant anymore. I just, and where that leaves brands, I don't really know. It's going to be very difficult for them to start tracking conversations if we're all use, having those conversations in private groups. I would agree. I would agree. I, I think um, when you say about people disengaging, I mean, personally speaking, I've retreated away from a lot of social media nowadays for the exact reasons we have talked about. Yeah. I just don't want to be exposed to negativity, to to battles all the time. I just don't want it in my life. And so I I'm I don't use Facebook now. I don't use Instagram. I still use Twitter and LinkedIn for business purposes, but like you say, I I you know, I think a lot of it is going towards private small groups of friends yes. and colleagues. You're you're quite right in it's not going to go away and I don't think it should either. But I, 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 the reason I'm asking this question is because I have no idea how this is going to play out over the next five years. And I'm just interested in what other people think, because I think it's, it's quite an interesting topic at the moment. There's a lot of good in social media as well. And I think that stuff won't go away. So campaigning, Yes. Sharing information to groups who perhaps wouldn't be able to get that information in other ways, vulnerable groups. But I think they will be, yeah, it's, it's groups, I think, that, that are important. And perhaps yeah. we'll just get much better at curating those groups. So we won't have 800 friends on Facebook anymore. We'll have 50 or 70 or 100. Yeah, yeah. We'll use different platforms. Different. I mean, I love Instagram personally, because for me, with the people that I follow and are friends with, it's all about lovely, happy pictures and <laughs> mostly wine and you know lovely days out nice things happy things facebook is a bit different i think but i think i'm getting better at blocking people at curating my feeds i'm having a bit of a love in with twitter at the moment which i totally fell out of love with for years i've heard that I'm, a lot from people at the moment yeah actually. i'm getting much better at curating the lists i think of people yeah. that i follow i don't want to maybe maybe i'm retreating into my own confirmation bias but i don't want to hear from people that are going to upset me so yeah. i've stopped following them Mostly. Yep, I, I agree. Um, okay, well, look, I could talk about this for ages, but we are we are kind of out of time. Um, really interesting chat, and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Well done so much on the book. Like I Thank said you. earlier, I think it's an amazing read, and I think everyone listening to this should should go and get themselves a copy. Where can people either get hold of you or get hold of the book? Well, the book is on Amazon. So um, if you search for Kate Hartley in books on Amazon, then Communication Crisis comes up. It's also on the Kogan Page website. I am very easy to find everywhere. I'm at Kate Hartley on pretty much every channel. So on LinkedIn, on Twitter and on what else am I on? Instagram. That's how old I am that I could get my own name on social media. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kate. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Paul. You can subscribe to Digital Download on iTunes, Google Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. And if you've got any ideas for future topics you'd like to see covered or people you'd like to hear from, contact me on Twitter where I'm at the Paul Sutton. Thank you for listening.